Good evening. If you'll take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Tonight is part two of a series on false teaching. It's interesting to me that this sermon comes on the hills of Roe v. Wade being overturned. One of the greatest lies that's ever been told is being overthrown in our lifetime. The lie that children in the womb did not have the same rights as everyone else. For 50 years, our society was blinded in their sin and fled to lies and not fled to the truth. Though there's much work to be done state by state in terms of adoption, caring for mothers and foster parents, this is a time for celebration. It's a time for rejoicing. This is a time to remember that the powers of darkness will not prevail that the sinful intentions of man will not triumph, and that God will not be mocked. This is a time to rejoice. Last time we were together, we learned about the character of false teachers from 2 Peter 2. If you haven't heard that sermon, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. We learned that false teachers are deceivers, they are immoral, and they are greedy. From our text tonight, we'll see that False teachers are like their father, the devil. They love controversy. They love confusion. But our main point this evening is to point us to how we can combat false teaching, how we can combat false practices. And we do that through fleeing these things, fleeing these teachings, and running to our Savior Christ to pursue his holiness, to fight the good fight of faith, by taking hold of eternal life. We'll be reading verses 3 through 12 with a specific emphasis on verses 11 and 12. The word of our Lord says this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing we, with these things, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, and pierce themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a good God. And I pray even now that you would allow us to hear truth, that you would not allow me to speak anything that would be a lie, 
Father, would you sanctify us in your word, for we know that your word is true. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1887, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, faced the biggest controversy in his lifetime. He had a magazine named The Sword and the Trowel. In March of that year, he published an article entitled The Downgrade. Spurgeon felt as if the most fundamental truths to the Christian faith were being questioned amongst his own denomination, the Baptist Union. Such doctrines as the infallibility of Scripture, the necessity of the atonement, and the existence of hell were becoming lost to this denomination. Spurgeon believed that association, that cooperation mattered, and it does matter. But there had to be agreement upon matters primary to doctrinal importance. It would have been easy for Spurgeon to capitulate to the world, especially when 80 alumni from the pastor's college, the school he started and developed, opposed his stance. His own brother voted to censure him, to cast him away from the denomination. Spurgeon said in a letter to a friend, I cannot tell you by letter what I have endured in the desertion of my own men. My heart has been ready to seek within me. Friends have forsaken me. And he said, he went on to say, that this fight is killing me. Not long after, Spurgeon would die at that young age of 57. He believed, though, in the midst of this controversy, that he would be vindicated either in this life or in the next on the day of judgment. Likewise, in 1 Timothy, Paul is dealing with false teaching. Paul understands the perils of false teaching. He, in fact, addresses false teaching on three different occasions within this letter. But not only does he address false teaching, Paul instructs us, the church, in sound doctrine. He speaks explicitly on Christ's atoning work in chapters 1 and 2. He says that the only way to heaven is through Christ, that believing upon him is the only thing that you should guard, and you should guard this good deposit. Then he addresses many ecclesiastical issues, many church issues. Things like how men and women should behave within the church, qualifications for elders and deacons, and specific instructions for how the body of Christ should treat one another and their pastors. Here in chapter 6, we see that the false teachers are trying to disturb the unity of the church. If you were to examine verses 3 through 10, you would see that unity is found around sound teaching and sound teaching accords it's connected to it's united to godliness verse 3 that the godliest of people are those who are more than just acquaintances with the truth they live in the truth they know the truth because sound words actually do produce what wisdom honestly we were to drive around and go from church to church in our community to try to get a metric of godliness, where do you think we should start? I believe we should start with the pulpit. Who is teaching and what are they saying? What is being taught? This is not to say that there aren't 
good, godly people in churches that have unsound teaching, yet what we would say is that they're good and godly despite what is being taught. They're good and godly because of the grace of God living within them. So we learn from these verses, these first seven verses, that sound teaching correlates with godliness. Then Paul says, godliness with contentment is of great gain to us. Verse 6, so an aspect of wolf-like behavior, false teaching, is creating senseless controversy over nothing, quibbling over things that aren't of eternal importance and that promote disunity rather than unity in the body of Christ. Paul realizes that godliness with contentment is not the case in many churches because there are people within the church who want to cause divisions. They are greedy for selfish gain. They are not familiar with the cross of Christ. They truly have no desire to deny themselves and follow Christ. Verse 4 says these words. The false teachers, the wolves, they have an unhealthy craving for controversy. That stuck with me this week. These individuals begin in the church under the guise of godliness, but in the end, they leave the church in disarray and disrepair. They create in their minds false narratives, and then they speak these narratives as if they're true. They hate order, they despise discipline, and anything that resembles unity around the truth of God's word, they resent. They love chaos. They love the chaos in the world, and they want to bring it into the church. In verses 3 through 10, there is an unhealthy craving for controversy. But there is also an unhealthy craving for money. Desiring to be rich, they fell away. They fell away from this faith. What we realize from these verses is that when you love anything more than you love Christ, more than you treasure Christ, more than you treasure this King of Kings and this Lord of Lords, you will fall into a path of destruction. You will want to become the main character, the main protagonist in a story that is not about you. And you might have earthly riches. You might gain earthly pleasures and popularity for a time. But they will all pass away until it's just you standing before the judgment seat of God. This is why verse 11 and 12 are so pointed and so helpful to us tonight. From these two verses, I have three points, which I hope will help us combat false practices and false teachings. First point, if we want to combat false teachings and practices, we must flee unrighteous teaching that promotes discontentment. We must flee unrighteous teaching that promotes contentment. Verse 11 says these words, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Paul is speaking to Timothy, but these words have implications for all believers, to the man of God and to the woman of God. The very reason Paul gives Timothy and us this command to flee these things is because there's a temptation in each of us to be caught up in the mud and the gossip and the slander. Flee the craving to be caught up in unhelpful and senseless disputes. 
Flee the urge, Timothy. Flee the urge, church, to think you have it all figured out. If only people would listen to me, then they would have it figured out. They wouldn't be in the mess they're in. And guess what? That may be true. <laughs> it may be true if people would listen to you, they wouldn't be in the mess that they're in. But is it coming from a heart of love or a heart to be right? We should have our back to the muck, to the gossip, to the controversies, with our eyes fixed straight ahead to the glory of Christ. Friends, I want to acknowledge a truth to all of us. It's okay. It is okay to disagree with your pastors. It's okay to disagree in the church. Don't feel as if the pastors here are demanding uniformity on all areas of Christian doctrine and practice. The pastors, in fact, disagree with one another on various issues. I promise you, you should come to a pastor's meeting at some point. You would see it. We disagree. However, we have to be sure that when we disagree with the, the teaching of a pastor or the practice of the church or with one another that is coming from a place of humility and love and not from a place of pride seeking our own way or desirous of conflict, you and I can be completely right on what the Bible says. We can be exactly right on what the Bible says. But we can be jerks. We can be jerks when we say exactly what we're thinking out of a heart of pride, a heart that's unloving, not wanting the best for others, but only longing to be right. Think about how Christ spoke in the days leading up to his crucifixion. Did he quibble over words? Did he resist being brought before unrighteous men to be judged? Did he try to win a debate over whether he was or was not the Son of God? No. Before the Pharisees in the garden, when asked if he was Jesus of Nazareth, he didn't say, hey, this is Peter, take him, or this is James, take him. He says, I am he. I am the one you want. Come get me. I am this Jesus. Friends, did Christ try to justify himself before Pilate, the one who was going to execute the orders for him to be sent over to be crucified? No. He simply spoke the truth. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to death, over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Church, if our Lord and Savior simply spoke the truth and avoided senseless debates, then shouldn't we do the same? Know the truth. Yes, seek to lovingly help people understand the truth with patience and long-suffering and flee anything that would disturb the faith of yourself and of others. There is a light ahead in the darkness. It may seem faint right now, but as you draw closer and closer and closer to it, all the darkness, all the fleeting pleasures of this world begin to dissipate until you're standing in glory with your Savior with Jesus. What a glorious day that will be when there will be no more need to flee. When there will be no more need to flee from this sin behind you. Because you'll be in front of the perfect Christ, 
our perfect Savior. And this leads me to my second point. Secondly, if we want to combat false teaching and practices, then we need to pursue a holy life. If we want to combat false teachings and practices, then we need to pursue a holy life. Notice verse 11 says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. But it doesn't stop there. True repentance means that we are going from sin towards something better. We're going from controversies, from debates, from lies, from immorality, from greed, to pursue something greater. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Love it. We have been born again. You are a new person. You have been regenerated, justified, converted. It means we have been changed from sinner to saint. In Christ, we have been freed from the chains of sin and death to a life, to life and righteousness. Let's think about the words Paul uses here momentarily. He starts off with the word righteousness. We are called to turn from unrighteousness and to love that which is righteous. Put off the old man while at the same time putting on the what? New man. We have been given new affections and new desires. Those affections are now toward obedience. They're toward obedience because we know that the law of God is actually good. It shows us his character and we want to run towards that which is righteous. The law of God points out that which is righteous. We want to obey it joyfully. And we can obey it because we have been freed by the death of Christ. We have been given the Spirit. Now when Christ says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we actually can hunger and thirst for righteousness because we have a new heart. We can actually keep the moral law because Christ has given us a new heart. The next word is godliness. We are called to flee godless behavior and pursue godliness. Godliness has been a word that has appeared several times within our text already. It is not enough that we are not caught up in the controversies. It's not enough that we aren't liars, that we aren't immoral, that we aren't greedy for selfish gain. Because James tells us faith without works is dead. Our confession states believers are God's workmanship created in Christ for good works so that they bear fruit leading to holiness, godliness, and have the outcome of eternal life. All of us who are in Christ are now called as those who have been bought with the blood of Christ to pursue that which would most glorify our Savior. Godliness means that we are exalting Christ in everything we do. A great definition of this is found in Romans chapter 12. Paul says, present your bodies, all of who you are, everything that's within you as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is the epitome of godly behavior. Everything that I am is pursuing that which would most glorify my God and King. The next word Paul uses is faith. Flee the mentality 
to not trust God, to not trust his word and not trust his leadership. Pursue a faith, a trust that would have you believing in his promises all the way to the grave. The world will distract you from this effort. But fix your mind upon his promises that would keep you trusting in him. Set your mind upon promises such as Hebrews 13.5, which says, Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Fix your mind, your heart upon promises like Matthew 28 when he says to his disciples when he's going on this great commission, we're called to go on this great commission. He says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you to the end of the days. God will not leave us. We are his. He will not turn his back on you. Our Savior has not left us. Continue believing. Continue having faith. Continue trusting even in the midst of great trial. The next word Paul gives to us is love. Friends, flee the desire to fill your mind with criticism, with malice, with slander, with hate, and pursue love. A love that is described best by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. A love that isn't jealous, but kind. A love that isn't arrogant, but humble. A love that doesn't act improper, but honorably. A love that isn't easily provoked, but seeks wisdom. A love that hates, lies, and rejoices in the truth. A love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes in all things, and endures all things. This love which is a picture of Christ's love towards us, is what we should pursue every day of our life. The next word Paul gives us is steadfastness. Friends, the world hates you. They do. If you haven't realized that, you should have watched the news this past week. They hate Christians as they hated Christ. You will be tempted to not speak truth to not live for Christ, and to avoid people. Remain steadfast to the hope you have in Christ. As Job was tempted to leave God in the midst of his trial, as Moses was tempted to leave God when the Israelites were complaining, as David was tempted to leave God in the midst of his own sin and lust, Continue to be steadfast. Continue to repent. Continue to trust in this Christ no matter the cost. Keep going. Keep pursuing. The reward is greater than the trial. The reward is greater than the trial. The final word Paul gives us is gentleness, which I believe is uh, appropriate. With all these other words, the one he ends with is gentleness. In the midst of controversy, in the midst of despair, in the midst of fights and conflicts, in the midst of wolves seeking to threaten the fold, Paul reminds us to be what? Gentle. Why? Because it's one of the very characteristics that Jesus defines himself by, right? He says, I am gentle and lowly of heart. Remember the proverb that says a soft word turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Pursue a God-glorifying life so that you might not be led away 
and join the forces of darkness. Lastly, if we want to combat false teaching and false practices, then we need to fight the good fight of faith by taking hold of eternal life. We need to fight the good fight of faith by taking hold of eternal life. Verse 12 says this very truth. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good profession in the presence of many witnesses. When we came to Christ, beloved, we joined a war. The Alamo, Gettysburg, nor the beaches of Normandy are our battlefield. We are not called to slay Goliath. Our war is against the flesh, the world, and the devil. And don't be ignorant to this fact. Ephesians 6 tells us, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2 even tells us what these things are, and it highlights for us the flesh, the world, and the devil. Friends, Christ manifested himself in the flesh to bring peace between you and God. This peace is not fully realized until we lay a hold of eternal life. Thus, Christ, what he has done is he has brought us into his war, into a war, into a battlefield. And though we have peace with God, we are at war with the enemies of darkness. James says in chapter 4, you adulterous people, do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of the God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he is made to dwell in us? But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes, he's against the proud and gives grace to the humble. This is our battle right here, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, to your leader. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Beloved, God has given us what we need for the fight of faith. He has given us the word which sanctifies us. He has given us a reward beyond this life which gives us hope in this fight. And aren't you encouraged right now that he is giving you other brothers and sisters as soldiers to fight alongside of you? That should be something that you take great hope in. It shows us, it shows us that we are not alone in this battle. We're not the only ones fighting for this truth. Like King David amongst our enemies, they surround us like bees, Psalm 118 tells us. They surround us like a fire. They threaten what is good and right and godly, but in the strength of the Lord, we can cut them off. As believers, we are now called and equipped for various battles and various trials. And let me give you a few as we close. In our marriages, sorry, I'm sweating. <laughs> In our marriages, we now have the ability to fight for intimacy, to fight for care and service. We no longer have to impose our selfishness. We can freely give to one another. Why? 
Because Christ is freely given to us. He's freely cared for us. A bride of folly. A bride of hate. A bride of immorality. Yet He chose to love us here and for eternity. Friends, through our union with Christ, we can now deny ourselves for the sake of our spouse. We can deny what we selfishly want for the sake of that other who's living in our household. In our bodies. When we are weak and wounded, sick and sore, when we have illness, when we're plagued by the fall, we now have the ability to fight for faith and joy in the midst of it. Why? Because we have an eternal home. Jesus says, so comforting, He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be troubled with the, the trials of this world, what's coming down the line. Believe in God and believe also in my, me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, guess what? It means He's coming back for you. He's not going to let you stay here in these bodies. These deathly bodies. These cursed bodies. He's going to give you a new body. He's going to give you new hope. Think about what you put before your eyes and your ears. We can now deny ourselves from the fleeting image and video we're watching. Why? Because we have, we know that the fleeting image brings temporary satisfaction. But our Christ brings eternal joy. Take hold of eternal life. Here in the church, we have the ability to submit to, to learn from, and to love one another even when we disagree with one another. Why? Because one day there will be no more disputes, no more disagreements. We will have an eternal home with complete unity and complete peace. You may disagree with that person across the aisle. One day those disagreements will fade away. They will be no more. Family, Take hold of eternal life. Fight to take hold of eternal life. Your reward and hope. Take hold of the fact that you will see Christ with an unveiled face. Though we see dimly now, we will see completely there. One day, temptations you face now will be gone because you will be in eternity with your Savior Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us faithful teachers. That you have given us hearts of obedience and not hearts of stone anymore. Father, I pray that all controversy, all confusion, all disputes, and all disagreements would soon fade away from us. That we would seek to joyfully submit under your word, all of us, that we would joyfully submit under this Christ, this Christ who has come to live and to die for our sins, that we would trust in him and that we would continue trusting in him. Father, help us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.